Hello, friend. You've got mail. Hello, friend. Welcome to this podcast all about the fabulous show, Mr. Robot. Today, Henry and I are here to talk about episode 11 of season two, for the most part, called Python Part One. This was a pretty fast-moving episode with a lot of scenes involving Dom, a little bit of Elliot, a lot of Angela, White Rose. Henry, what did you think about this episode? Well, plenty of fodder for conversation, right? And it kind of took me from the extremes of, I cannot believe they just did that. I think this jumped the shark to, wow, all right, that's interesting. Uh, Game on. So, Henry, one question I have for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Dolphin or gazelle? (laughs) Dolphin. Definitely (laughs) dolphin. I hear you. I'm with dolphin as well. Oh, gosh, where do we begin? So we did get to see Elliot, and some of the scenes involving Elliot this episode I thought were really creepy. And I should mention the title is called Python, blah, 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 blah. Python is a language, a computer language, and if you go on Webopedia, they tell you that it's an object-oriented programming language, which I know you've heard of, Henry, created by Guido Van Rossum and named after Monty Python's Flying Circus. Eat culture rules. (laughs) so how about elliot with his lucid dreaming experiments yeah that i don't know what to make of that well i mean uh just kind of more weirdness right mind awake body asleep mind awake body asleep it was a little spooky for sure but we got to see mr robot again yeah and just the way that the tables were turned on mr robot what by elliot where elliot was spying on him i thought that was fairly intense and very disconcerting to watch. Did you get any of those feelings? What did you think about that? Uh, I don't know. It just seemed kind of like a, a logical continuation of the storyline. Like, I think they're going to kind of milk this uh, split personality, alter ego thing for a bit. So I think we're going to see a lot of different variations of this. Uh, and in fact, I actually wondered if Elliot is not the only character with this type of uh mixed persona. I think you're onto something there, Henry, and we'll probably come to that maybe a little bit later in this episode. But for now, once we figure out that Elliot is working his lucid dreaming angles, and basically lucid dreaming implies being able to control your actions or your thoughts when you are essentially asleep. So if you're in a dream, you can actually reason and logic with whatever's happening in the dream in a way as if you were awake. So that's what that means. We do get a little bit of insight into what's going on with Joanna, who's still wearing black. I find that very concerning. But what did she mean about the greatest gift that Terrell ever sent? Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like she was staring down at the phone when she said that. So I said to myself, like, is it something, some information? Is it some sort of beacon? I'm not sure. Yeah, I was wondering what that was about. And I know there were a lot of theories swirling around about what that address was that Elliot found. Is it Scott Knowles? Is it is it Terry Colby? Is, where is that house? Have you had any more thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I wonder if that's somehow the location of her husband. Um, and so 
you know, later in the episode, they kind of uh, do that big reveal about her husband. Uh, so maybe that's what it was. If that is the true location of where Tyrell is hiding out, which, first of all, it makes me laugh because in a lot of ways, Mr. Robot is such a New York-centric story. Only people from Manhattan or the Five Barrows would think going under deep cover would be going from, like, the Upper East Side to Chelsea. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to lay low. I'm going to go to Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to hide out. Nobody will ever find me in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, but there were a lot of... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was also wondering if maybe on her phone there was a bunch of e-coins um, and that that was the gift that Toro had left her so that regardless of what happened, they would have the means to do what they needed to do. Oh, that's such an amazing thing. That would be such an amazing gift. And if I were Joanna, I would really love getting thousands and thousands of e-coins delivered to my phone. Wouldn't that be cool if that's what it was? Yeah, I think so. And I guess Sam Esmail, the writer and director of this episode and all the episodes for season two, the show creator, is a big Back to the Future fan. So apparently many of the songs featured in this episode were, were from Back to the Future, especially many involving scenes with Angela, because after we, we leave Joanna, we cut to Angela, and it turns out that it was the dark army who absconded her in the subway, which the subway is, you know, you're right. You've said this before. It really does figure in as sort of this in-between place. Yeah. I mean, it, it's this kind of weird purgatory nether realm that blends people from these different parts of the show together. Yeah. And so the people Angela encounters who are very silent, they, turn out to not be from the FBI. They're not from Evil Corp, or at least not on the surface. They are from the Dark Army. And she's driving in this van and makes a, a rather feeble attempt to secure her freedom. Well, I, I think the, the the thought that came through my mind when she was in that van was like, uh, here we go, it's Angela Dynamite, you know, where Angela <laughs> does her best impression of napoleon dynamite like hey guys like let me go like this is so uncool hey you know like uh, that's just kind of what i kept thinking is like angela like dynamite with the sad mopey eyes and the kind of half clever half idiotic ideas that's really funny i have heard all sorts of theories about angela and who she is and what she represents i've been listening to a lot of the different podcasts because we're recording a little bit later this week i've been on reddit and some people think she's an android some people think she's a psychopath but but henry only you have used consistently the napoleon dynamite metaphor which i think is hilarious She's a lot more understandable to me as a character if I envision her as Angela Dynamite, sister of Napoleon. <laughs> well, you know, we did cut to a little bit away from Angela for a little bit with all those Back to the Future references in the van with the music playing and to, to Dom. And Dom is recovering in the hospital. There was a throwaway line where I heard uh, people died. And so that could imply... Cisco died only, or Cisco and Darlene died. We never really find out, huh? Yeah, I kind of took that to be kind of a hollow threat because the way that they were spraying their uh, machine submachine guns, other people in the restaurant could have been hit by gunfire too. 
So I, I just kind of took that as like the writers, you know, trying to get the, the viewers wound up a little bit. That's true. And even one of the Dark Army assassins or both of them, I think one uh, did themselves in. So I guess that counts towards the total tally. <laughs> yeah, I see this another instance where the writers kind of use a deliberate plot fork uh, to create some suspense uh, to hold this over until the next episode. And we find out in this scene that not only was Price successful in obtaining $2 trillion from, from China as a bailout for Evil Corp. No strings attached, supposedly. But you know what? Beware the free lunch, huh? Yeah, and this scene really made me think about something that you had said uh, a while back where you wondered whether Ed, Ed, Elliot was actually a patsy. Um, and someone kind of being set up for uh, as a pawn in a much larger game, and made me think that you know things are kind of working out pretty well for Evil Corp, uh, despite a huge uh, security breach and active sabotage that would otherwise cripple a company. They seem to have a remarkable contingency plan lined up. Yeah, and the the size of the deal basically puts the stops on so much that is government related in the one area, the law enforcement, basically Santiago is telling Angela, you know, although I have my own theories about what's going on, you know, just stay out of it. And he's, he's kind of gaslighting her. He, he's like the, the quintessential gaslighting boss who, who doubts every bit of her reality. Either he has to be the pl a plant for the dark army, or he has to be one of the dumbest people in the universe, in my opinion. They kind of set it up so there's no in-between, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, boss, the boss is kind of set up to be either incredibly stupid or incredibly treacherous. Yes. And did you notice that when Angela was brought into the house, I think it was in Jersey of all places, which is hysterical, like White, White Rose has a, a camp out in in probably like Princeton, New Jersey or Voorhees, New Jersey. But she goes into this really cool desaturated room. It's all black and white. And it very much reminded me of Philip Price's office at Evil Corp. So Angela's always in these really desaturated rooms and scenes. And she walks past all these family photos that have squares that obscure the faces. What could that have possibly been? Yeah, I didn't get. I I didn't understand that either. Um, certainly creepy. <laughs> yeah, and there are some clues, or some people, at least in places like the dark corners of Reddit, who have been freeze framing and zooming in, and there have been different theories about uh, whether those are photos of other characters who are currently in the show that we're just not aware of. So. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh, uh, the, the laying of a lot of Easter eggs. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, someone's going to freeze frame that. I started thinking about it, and I'm like, oh, I think the people on Reddit will do that for me. <laughs> right, right. It does take a, a lot of time and effort to – because basically – and, and Sam Esmail has been criticized for this a little bit, but I mean, my gosh, you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. But people have been saying, enough with the Easter eggs already. <laughs> I think part of that is that there might be a frustration like I have that there hasn't been more 
substantive plot developments this season. And so it's a little bit like, hey, okay, stop with the Easter eggs already. Stop like doing things behind the, the scenes and then hinting at the big reveal as dramatic tension. Like, just go on with the plot. Tell us what happens next. Well, I'll tell you, I, I've kind of been reserving saying this, especially since Mr. Robot just picked up all these Emmy nominations for whatever that's worth. But I think this is the danger, quote unquote, of letting the show creator just have complete artistic freedom over every aspect of the show and not bringing in different directors. I'm not going to complain about it because I think if this season were binge watched, we wouldn't have some of these complaints. So I, I love that he had that freedom, but for people who wanted to see the story move faster, I can totally see how that might have had an impact on it. Yeah. I think, um, I, I, I think for me, like I just feel a certain sense of like, Hey, like, this would have been awesome if some of these plot developments were happening in episode four um, rather than episode 11. Totally. And so we finally get to this total Lynchian type scene of Angela in a very dark room with a giant fish tank. And I have a few things to say about that, that is slowly draining out. There's little Angela who is setting up the Commodore 64 and booting up a game to start giving Angela her e-meter assessment. <laughs> yeah, and I really like that scene, if nothing else, for the fact that it had Commodore 64 and legit commands on the screen, like really scratch nostalgic itch. Like I was like, oh, okay, load, you know, load quote, asterisk quote, you know, like a list, all these commands that I, I typed in endlessly. And even the sound of the keyboard with a, with a high amount of give before you hear the actual click, it brought back a lot of memories. And uh, what it taught me was that they actually had Angela's floppy disk. Um, what they had there was actually Angela's floppy disk from when she was younger, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that might have even been a replica of her older computer. And maybe that little girl is Angela. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like a, a version a, a split dimension version. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how does, the dark army recruit little kids. Well, I wonder to what extent in, I, I guess we'll, we can get into this now I mean, during this scene, I started thinking that maybe white Rose as a woman is a different personality than white Rose, the Chinese diplomat and the schemer. Um, and when I started thinking about that, it made me think, well, that would be interesting. Maybe he has a certain obsession with split personalities and identities and alter egos. And in a way, like that girl was set up to be an alter ego of Angela as she was younger, the way that she was dressed and her appearance. So I wonder if just like time is his thing, if alternate identities is also his thing. Mm -hmm. Do you do you go by him or so I refer to White Rose as a she because I feel like I feel like that's um, do you feel she shifts her her gender identity based on whether what dimension she might be in? Or he? Yeah, that's what I wonder. Like mm -hmm. if there's if there's somehow um, a shift in personality as well as gender uh, between the two, and if this person or is actually indeed like obsessed or fascinated with alternative personalities and ego, alter egos, the same way that he is about time. Maybe he sought out Elliot, or once he identified Elliot, thought this is a perfect pawn to use in my plot. Well, she's. She certainly has an elaborate way of doing 
HR intake and retention. I'll tell you that much because she really researched who Angela is and, you know, it begs the question, how does she know so much about Angela to put all of those references? So there are a couple cool things about the fish tank. And I did a bunch of research before we chatted today, because when I first saw it, I thought of Monty Python and the Meaning of Life, there's a scene with fish in the tank. It definitely reminded me of QWERTY, right? And, and Angela has QWERTY now, Elliot's fish. And there was this daydream sort of psychedelic scene a, a few episodes ago uh, with Elliot. It was actually season one, episode four, where Angela and Elliot were having dinner at All Safe. And Angela was eating a fish on a plate. I remember that. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like it's probably significant. Oh, you know, maybe there are polluted fish from the nuclear plant, right? Like maybe the fish are uh, will provide the evidence for the environmental contamination that is being caused. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there was an environmental angle or symbolism to that as well. And even with the name Python, I know that's a programming language and there wasn't any snake symbolism in this episode. Some of the podcasters were like, I didn't see any snakes. But what, what do pythons do? They Don't they suffocate their, like, aren't they like boa constrictors? Don't they suffocate their prey? Is that what pythons do or are they more attack? Yes. I mean, Yes, that's okay. what I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool, too. And there was uh, Nabokov's Lolita on the desk. And then also Darlene is replete with Stanley Kubrick's film uh, Lolita references. And then the Hang In There poster was an Easter egg in another episode where they had encrypted audio, an image into audio, and somebody decrypted it on Reddit. So there you have it. Interesting. Easter eggs upon Easter eggs. And ultimately, in the end, what does it mean? Because it reminds me sometimes of those hidden object games or like those Sierra online mm -hmm. games from yesteryear, mm -hmm. where you sometimes have these objects in a room that don't really do anything. And you think that, you know, like whenever you would have that like mass inventory bag, only like 70, 80% of the items would actually be used for yep. anything meaningful. Like the rest of them were just kind of red herrings and just used like to refer to each other, like you could combine them, but they didn't serve any real purpose. Yeah, I thought that too. I feel like they are purposely going out of their way to create scenes that are very game-like, not only with Angela playing an actual old-fashioned text adventure game like Crystal Cave uh, with her, her mirror younger self, but uh, even the scene where... Elliot said, please help me find something in the scene. Very point and click adventure. Probably a lot like their VR experience, I have a feeling, um, which I still need to try. So it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, we'll see where this all goes and how significant any of these things actually are. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so... So basically, Angela asks a bunch of questions. She has to have a bizarre phone call on the red phone when she couldn't see beyond some of the places that the story was trying to lead her. How do you think Angela did playing what was the land of Echo Delia? <laughs> well, I, I, the way that the scene wrapped up, it made me think that maybe she had played the game a lot as a younger child because um, she seemed to kind of remember what she was supposed to do. 
That's true. I mean, at one point, at first I was a little bit disappointed thinking, Angela, come on, get with the program. But she she could have very well likely played that game as a child. It's a, it's obviously a made-up game. It doesn't really exist. But it does touch on, I think, some of the themes we saw in the opening of the ALF episode where it opened up like an episode of The Simpsons and it showed this nuclear power plant. So I'm hearing themes of environmental devastation and disaster. Yeah, I, I me as well. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, Price pays another visit, the arch-villain. I pays a visit to the Secretary of Treasury. How are you finding Price as a villain? Uh, fairly believable. Um, you know, it. what I was thinking about in this scene was that sometimes when large, powerful entities seem to capitalize on misfortune. There is this tendency, especially nowadays, to assume that it's a result of some conspiracy, that these big organizations somehow manufactured this conspiracy uh, event to kind of take advantage of it somehow, right? Like people say this about 9-11, and here you have the Secretary of Treasury say this in essence to Richard Price, kind of implying that maybe, you know, it's pretty convenient that they're doing so well in the aftermath of this uh, attack right and it made me think that you know sometimes it's not a conspiracy sometimes large powerful organizations just do a lot of scenario planning like they map out various possibilities even low probability ones but that low probability events that have enough significance that they need to at least think about how they would respond and they just put these contingency plans into place and they have them up on a shelf somewhere and when events happen, these things get dusted off and put into play, sometimes without enough debate, sometimes without enough consideration. And it's in a way like a script, the same way that you know uh, programmers will just have a collection of scripts that they can take down and uh, deploy as they need. I thought White Rose, once again, B.D. Wong is just killing it as, as White Rose. And she had this fierce manicure with this awesome blue nail polish and she's just trying to figure out why Angela is like a bad penny and and she digs a little bit deeper with Angela and starts starts to present the idea maybe your your mother died for a reason and Elliot's father died for a reason to take humanity to the next level and that made me think of the Heaven's Gate cult <laughs> Well, and whatever she revealed to Angela, because it's not revealed to us, is must have been convincing enough that Angela shows up at her little attorney's house later and says, don't ever contact me again. Uh, that, to me, was pretty interesting to kind of think about what must have been revealed. And that poor attorney puts up with so much of Angela's bullcrap. Yeah, she's really earning her contingency fee in this particular case. Like, holy shnikes. Angela is such a freaking head case they were really good using the the lights flickering on and off as an effect for example was that used as a subtle warning against the lawyer to really back down or was it just interesting timing in the same way that the dark army assassins came when they assassinated elise cisco it was time to all the street lights flashing did you think that was connected on purpose i think oh, i may, i actually thought it was a little foreshadowing about the connection between electricity and the larger plot of the Dark Army. Because it seems to me that, you know, there was mention made in one of the prior episodes about like brownouts and like power disruptions. 
And there was mention of a nuclear power plant, which uh, we think is uh, what White Rose is preoccupied by. So it, I wonder if there is somehow a connection to these blackouts, the availability of electricity, this particular project. I wonder if they're all interconnected. I think they are. Are you starting to have some theories? Because I am starting to have some theories about where they're trying to take us. Oh, um, I'm curious what your theory is. Tell oh, me. I think that they're heading in a matrix direction a little bit. Oh, like everything is simulated. Mm-hmm. That would be really disappointing. You know, that would be worse than Dom's <laughs> dialogue with Alexa that I thought was a complete sellout by the show. Because I'm pretty convinced that money changed hands for this scene. Um because this isn't the first episode where Alexa has been featured, right? And right now, Amazon's doing a big product release and push for its Echo product that has Alexa, the Echo Dot. And so I find that whole extended scene, that which is kind of like the movie Her, and culminating in the tearful, you know, do you love me? I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit. I thought that was absurd. Yeah, so the way the story is told is apparently Sam Esmail was playing with his Amazon Echo, and I think a lot of people already know what an Amazon Echo is, but just in case, it's this it's the smart home device that Amazon sells, I think, for $199. Henry, they even just released a, an open, uh, not an open source, they just released a narrative development platform kit so you could create games like the land of echo delia using alexa by the way so like a text-based adventure so that amazon just released that but basically if you say alexa what time of it is it and stuff like that it works a little bit like siri but it has extra functionality you could use it to control lights and music and a whole bunch of other connected uh kinds of smart home things and i a lot of people really love this scene and it Apparently, Sam Esmail was experimenting with it, and that's what Alexa really says. But I have to tell you, I was thinking somebody like Dom would not be so dumb to allow those types of sensitive questions to be in a database about her somewhere. <laughs> yeah, or to even have those devices in her house. Like she's being, ha- she's going after one of the most sophisticated hacker groups ever, who has just orchestrated orchestrated one of the largest security hacks ever and she puts in an iot device of dubious security into her house i that just seems really stupid yeah though it's a good point it is a very risky thing to do because it's assuming that if darlene was so able to hack into susan jacobs smart home what's to stop them from using whatever way they ways they can to find you know either control what's going on in her home or hack into social hack into dom's personality there are a lot of theories swirling around about dom we find out she has a a very hefty arm tattoo she has a patsy klein poster on her wall next to half open bottle or half drunk bottle of alcohol yeah i mean i I, my distaste for this scene ranks really up there just because I feel like it was primarily there to sell Alexa. I don't think, I don't, I think any advancement of the narrative or the show's interests is secondary to money changing hands in that scene. 
yeah, yeah. I definitely felt like it smacked of product placement too. I I definitely uh, noticed that as well. Um, all right. So I I thought the scene where Elliot was observing Mr. Robot, we we discover what Elliot. Mr. Robot was looking for was a, a menu that was in, in the mail uh, in Elliot's apartment and it had an encrypted code. And apparently this is a game that was lifted from a recent DEF CON conference or a very similar game. I didn't know that. It's kind of neat. And I thought the process that, that Mr. Robot was using to, um, he went to uh, decode.org uh, because he was looking for a ROT13 encryptor and decryptor, and it's a letter substitution sc scheme. And then he had to remove certain numbers that were in a certain kind of uh, known mathematical sequence. I thought that was pretty cool. It was the Mike MacGyver sequence for the show, right? Mm -hmm. I, that's kind of how I'm starting to think about them, is like these MacGyver sequences in the film where Ellie gets to be all hacky, um, brilliantly hacky. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting. Turns out to be a phone number and it's a phone number that gives him an address and that's where he finds out he has to go meet. The funniest character in this episode, a taxi, a taxi driver waiting for him, I think at 8th Avenue and 25th and they're going to drive all over Manhattan in a crazy way. But I thought the taxi driver was such a great Manhattan type dude. Yeah, I've, I've had experiences with taxi drivers very much like him. He seemed so annoyed. Uh, which I would be too, right? And it made me kind of think, like, wonder, like, how much of how taxi drivers is, uh, behaves is just because they deal with so many idiots during the course of a day that they're just always agitated. They're just, like, always at the end of their rope. Oh, you, I totally think that's what it has to be. I mean, you would imagine it's so stressful. It's expensive to lease taxis or to rent them for the day. You really have to make a certain amount of money. And when gas prices are really high, that's especially stressful. And then driving in New York traffic is stressful. And I think having Elliot, I think these were some of the freakiest scenes in, with Elliot and them in terms of him looking completely just weirded out and not knowing what is going on. His eyes were bulging so much. It was really funny. Do you think that Taxi driver can see Tyrell? Yeah, I think he can. But that's a good point. I just kind of assumed that he could. But I guess he never really addresses him directly, though, does he? The only thing I noticed is that when Tyrell... Tyrell was the one who said what address to go to. Church and Chambers or something. So that was the only thing. But that could have just been Elliot thinking he heard Tyrell say it and he really said it, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I I hope that they're not doing, I guess, quote, this again, where they kind of introduce this plot device and like, hey, like, here's this thing that you didn't realize. Oh, psych, he's just seeing things like that. That's just gonna that's gonna piss me off almost as much as Dom having this existential moment with the Amazon uh, voice recognition device. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> You won't even give it the dignity of calling it the echo, echo, echo. Yeah. I mean, just like, come on, seriously. Uh, that was really painful to watch. Like up until then, nothing about her character made me think that she would seriously ask existentially deep questions to a device with pre-canned responses, like culminating in, do you love me? Like, really? What? Like, why? What, what what was that question coming from? 
that's practically inviting the NSA to tag you if you're an FBI agent, especially because they're going to question her stability and it's being implied. She has some past that we do not know. And um, some people thought she had known Darlene previously. I don't think that's the case, but it's, it is a shame she had to help with the product placement portion of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause you notice like, no, no scene involves like necessarily uh, a outrageous hack of these echo devices, right? It's not like they're showing what a terrible thing these things are. It's more of like you can talk to it. It's always available. It's right there for you. It will listen to you. There's one cool thing: the menu that Mr. Robot was list was looking at was called Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue, and I believe that was the same name as Elliot's Journal. The Red Wheelbarrow. Oh, good catch. So that tells me we're in some kind of virtual world. Oh, God. That's just going to annoy me. Like, what? So now we can't, like, now it's worlds within worlds within worlds, right? Like, there's a world inside Elliot's head. There's a simulated world, that VR, whatever, around him. And, the yeah, so that just makes it multiple layers. You know what Mr. Robot needs, Henry? What? It needs J.J. Abrams. He needs to reboot it. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A change in creative direction. Everything is real. Everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Like, I feel like there's a growth in these types of shows that are kind of based on reality, but not. You know, like the show Brain Dead that kind of looks like Capitol Hill, and what would happen if these brain-eating bugs came in? And it's clearly not meant to be realistic. But it's at the same time trying to say something about real life, quote unquote. Absolutely. And and the only thing that I liked about the Tyrell and Elliot episode, besides the funny scenes with the taxi driver, is as they were heading off to, to uh, look at how stage two is ready to go and, and Tyrell can't believe Elliot forgets again. It's such a problem. He says, this is the start of a beautiful friendship, I believe. And that's a, a Casablanca homage. And that's one of my favorite movies. So. Yeah. I, 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 I got that reference too. And oh, so neat. I just kind of kinda chuckled. I was like, all right, you know, here's looking at you kid. <laughs> I guess. Uh, right. Like, well, we'll see, we'll see where this goes. Uh, uh, but I, but I, I, I hope that, um, it messes less with these. I feel like they're kind of cheap narrative tricks. Uh, I would really like to see it kind of focus on some deep development. I hear you. Uh, do you have any predictions you want to put put on the line as we prepare for the finale next week, which I can't believe is already here? Any thoughts about where we're heading? I think Darlene's life will be uh, the one in jeopardy and used to kind of create the dramatic hook retention. I think uh, whether or not she survives uh, will be uh, at stake uh, in this final cliffhanger. That's a great guess. Mine is a little bit less exciting. I think we're going to see some characters who previously have disappeared into the background. So I think we will see more of Scott Knowles. I think we might see more of Trenton and who knows uh, some other folks who we may not be expecting. Definitely not Angela's lawyer. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, what, who what was the name of that dude um, 
who with uh, who was a dealer that was in season one. Oh, the Fernando Vera. Yeah, Fernando. I I wonder if he will make a comeback. He's a fairly menacing dude, and the drug angle of the show has been a little bit underexplored this season. So I wonder if he makes a a comeback somehow. Mm-hmm. Great, great question. And I want to thank our listeners for rating and reviewing and subscribing and participating on our Hello Friend podcast Facebook page. Henry, this has been so much fun. Mind awake, body asleep. Mind awake, body asleep. Mind awake, body asleep. (laughs) I'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. I'm more alive than ever Commodore 64 lets you play hundreds more games than any video machine, plus draw, program, even do music. I'm more alive than ever before, and my friends are knocking down my door.